From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Jenna Spinelli. And welcome to Democracy Works. Guys, when uh, this this episode comes into listeners' feeds, it will be Iowa Caucus Day, the official start of the 2020 Democratic primary. And we're, we're actually, we're recording today um, one year away from Inauguration Day 2021. Wow. I didn't remember that. That's a big deal. Um, so it's time to start talking about the election. Well, yeah, I, I, in, in our own way. I mean, yeah. um, not about who's winning or who should win or anything like that, but just to talk about how distinctive and confusing and uh, constantly changing the, the primary processes. So uh, before we get too far, I, I realized we forgot to introduce our guest for this week. So. <laughs> ah, who needs a guest? <laughs> we can just keep talking. <laughs> Either way, it doesn't matter. Who do we have we today to talk yeah. about the primaries? Yeah, so to help us uh, put this in some some historical context, help expand on some of these things you guys have just been talking about, uh, we have David Carroll, who's an associate professor in the Department of Government and Politics at the University of Maryland. Uh, it'll be our third third UMD guest. We had Stella Rouse last year, and just last week we had Dana Fisher. So uh, quite the quite the trifecta from Maryland. But um, David is really yep. a, a wealth of information about, about the primaries and parties and, and how the two intersect. Yeah, in fact, David was one of the uh, co-authors on the book, The Party Decides, uh, which pe- some people may remember from 2016 uh, got a lot of airplay because the th- what, among the thesis in that book was the idea that uh, party officials would be the ones that would decide who would uh, be the party uh, party candidates. Turned out that was certainly the case with Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. uh, where party regulars seemed to be uh, uncomfortable with uh, Bernie, Sanders. Bernie Sanders, who, of course, is, is not a Democrat, but was obviously not true of the Republican Party, where Donald Trump was not at all the choice of the Republican Party establishment. Now he is the Republican mm-hmm, Party, mm-hmm. But, but at that time. But, but all of this gets to uh, what uh, the authors of How Democracy uh, Dies refer to as the gatekeeping role mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. political parties, that parties have to make a determination about who's going to run under their label. And there are different ways to do this. Right. Uh, you know, in uh, most other countries, this is done by the party without a whole lot of public public uh, input into that. And as uh, David will, I'm sure, discuss in his interview uh, within the United States, especially from 1968 on, this has become increasingly democratized. I think well, the argument is that the party decides, and this was written well after the move to a primary-dominated system for choosing the, 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 the nominee. But their argument was that even though that has happened, and even though the party's direct power was um, you know, attenuated, was, was diminished, the party still had all these indirect ways of, of um, influencing the election. And the argument was that in 2016 – show it, the, the results of that, especially on the, on the Republican side, show that those um, influences are at minimum not uh, all, all powerful, right? And so I just wonder if, you know, we have made this, you know, we can, you, can, uh, you can show that historically this process has led to the party, the, part, the role of the party going down and the role of the electorate going up. And, um, you know, it's just so uh, the question is, has it gone up too much? Or uh, has has the party 
has the, the, the thesis that the party decides been proven wrong? Yeah, I mean, I think what, what David will probably outline is that it's not a straight line, that there have been, you know, immediately after the reforms in 1968, you had the Democrats choose a candidate, and then again in 1976, choose a candidate that party regulars would not have gone mm-hmm, for. Mm-hmm. And then they sought to change that by, right. by say, by creating, for example, superdelegates. I don't want to get too into the details, but to try to try to pull some of that back and put it put it back in the party. And of course, you know, most of what party regulars are thinking about by party regulars, I mean elected officials and county officials, these kind of things, is whether or not the party is going to win, right. and then whether or not the person can actually govern effectively and deliver what it well, is. Certainly, the, the, the first one is the most important. Right. But the uh, but uh, how democracies dies have us thinking about this in a more profound way. Mm-hmm. And that is that the parties also have a responsibility to keep out candidates that would themselves be dangerous to democracy. So the argument into how democracies die is the parties aren't entirely the most democratic. The party's choosing, the party deciding isn't necessarily the, the most democratic way to do it because it keeps some of the hands, uh, comes some of the power right. out of the hands of the people. But the results of that effect sometimes are more, are better for democracy than leaving it in the hands of the people. Right. Well, that's certainly the point of the, the, the right. argument they make in that mm-hmm. book is that the parties have a you know, profound responsibility mm-hmm. here to protect democracy. Uh, but the U.S., and we've talked about this in other contexts, has become increasingly democratic, increasingly demanding of democratic mm-hmm, rights, mm-hmm. and so it just rubs people the wrong way. Right. Most European countries, the primary is very closed, right? And and they think it's kind of odd that that non-party members would be choosing who the party selects as, as its nominee. Oh, yeah, like in open primaries. Right. We have a distinctive form of democracy in many ways. In many uh, ways. Yeah. And, and, um, and so if you're confused by how these primaries work, you should be. <laughs> They're very confusing, and it's a moving target because the parties are always changing the rules to figure out, uh, to, to respond to what happened wrong the last time, right? So let's uh, let's... As you said, this is a confusing process. Uh, we've kind of set the stage for it here, I think, at least somewhat. So let's uh, bring in my interview with David Carroll for some more history and some more context on primaries. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with David Carroll. David, thank you for joining us on Democracy Works. It's good to be with you. So we are going to talk today all about primaries. Uh, And I think there's a few big questions we want to address, um, talking a little bit about the the history of how our primary system got to its current state, the role that the parties play in in the process and and how that's changed in the, the past couple of decades. And then finally, you know, what all of this means for democracy. So I think maybe the the historical perspective is is the best place to start and you know I know for for a long time um primaries were controlled solely by the parties. Um how did the the notion of the public being directly involved uh come in to the picture? Well, the nomination process has evolved a lot. Um it's changed much more than the general election has changed. You know, we've had the Electoral College from the beginning and the rules uh, ha- haven't changed very much. Uh, but the, the, there's been a big trend over time in the nomination process by 
by political parties. Uh, the, the first candidates were chosen by, in, by an informal congressional caucus that had no legal authority, just more like a kind of a parliamentary arrangement where the members of Congress from a party uh, uh, selected the candidate. And by the middle of the 19th century, the conventions that we know today uh, existed, but the delegates to those conventions were chosen at meetings that were not necessarily so well publicized. And the participation, while, while, while incorporating many more people than the Congressional Caucus did, still uh, it was a relatively small number of people who were involved. It wasn't very transparent. By the early 20th century, in the Progressive Era, primaries are, are established. And uh, it's very unusual in comparative perspective because the primaries are generally organized by state governments uh, and were created by state laws. So a state that, whose official, elected officials may be from one political party still are running primary elections for both parties in most cases. And that's something Americans think is normal and take for granted that's very unusual uh, in comparative perspective. In a lot of other countries, people would think this is bizarre. But the primaries that were created in the early 20th century still did not play a dominant role in the nomination of presidential candidates for many decades. That's the case for a couple of reasons. Many states still did not use primaries. Their delegates were chosen via party meetings that were often controlled by party machines and organizations. Some candidates entered primary selectively when they needed to show strength. A really strong candidate could hope to be drafted at a convention, which was kind of a fiction because in fact they were running for the nomination, but the stronger they were, the more, the less visible they had to be in their efforts, you know? And that was, not seen as unacceptable. Um, you know, Adlai Stevenson didn't run in any primaries. There were, uh, Tom Dewey in 1944 didn't run in when he was very strong, didn't run in any primaries. The convent, because of this, because several delegations would be controlled by favorite sons, because uh, there were only so many contested primaries, it was common for the convention to open without it being clear who the nominee would be. Uh, it often took more than one ballot for that to be determined. It could stretch over a period of days. That existed more or less until the end of the 1960s. There was a trend towards greater participation in primaries on the part of candidates. Uh, the favorite son uh, practice was in decline, but it was still possible to be nominated without running in any primaries. Yeah, let me before we we get into the the sixties. Let me just just pause to ask. So, you know, uh, in this this time, we see, uh, you know, women's suffrage. We we see the things like the the Voting Rights Act and, and African Americans getting getting the right to vote. I mean, were there any kind of indications from the public that yeah, maybe this the system the way things are done is is not the best, or you know, we really feel like we should have more of a say. Well, in the progressive era, in the early 20th century, uh, primaries were created in many states, and that was a movement. It wasn't entirely, uh, probably not even mostly, focused on presidential nominations. There was a lot of concern about you know, nominations for Congress and for state offices, especially because many states were dominated by one party, so that 
if the nomination process was also fairly closed off, um, there wasn't that much public involvement really, you know, in choosing uh, elected officials. So th there was a primary movement in the progressive era. It was also, uh, there was also this idea that, part, you know, party bosses were corrupt and that uh, having primaries would, would weaken them. And that did have a on the presidential nomination process. So the first time it's really visible is 1912. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt had voluntarily stepped aside as president when he was still eligible for another term in 1908, but he later decided he wanted to make a comeback, uh, and he challenged his successor, William Howard Taft, and he ran in a series of primaries that year, and he won almost all of them. I think after the progressive era, it wasn't that big a deal for people. I mean, people, a lot of people, there were critics. But a lot of people just thought, well, this is what parties do, you know, and this is the Amer this is the American tradition. There were some primaries in some states. Uh, they helped and hindered some candidates. Uh, there was always there were always critics of, you know, bossism. That was a word that was used. But I would say it wasn't most people's focus most of the time. But then we get to the 60s and, and 1968 in particular. I understand it was really kind of the, the watershed moment for, for the process really changing in a substantive way. That's right. Uh, it, 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 there, there were some trends. And when you see in a, a big, important historical change, often there are underlying background trends. And then there is a spark or a moment, like, you know, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand is how World War I began. But, of course, there's a big background to that. Otherwise, his assassination wouldn't have mattered so much. So in 1968, that background is some of the things that you mentioned had happened. The civil rights movement had already happened. Uh, television had um, been created. And by 1968, everyone had a TV. So people had, for several years, seen primaries as part of the process, if not dominant. But in 1968, what happened is President Johnson was being challenged by uh, Eugene McCarthy, the anti-Vietnam War candidate. And after McCarthy had a surprisingly strong showing in the New Hampshire primary, where Johnson was on the ballot but wasn't campaigning because he was above that as an incumbent president, you know, especially in wartime, that was his posture. After that, after um, McCarthy's strong showing, Bobby Kennedy gets in the race and Johnson sees that he's going to have a messy, difficult campaign and he withdraws from the race. But this is the calendar was more compressed back then. And this happens in March of the election year. And people did not think that was going to happen, that President Johnson was going to withdraw. Hubert Humphrey, the vice president, then enters the race as a, basically the candidate of the supporters of President Johnson, the people who are still supporting the Vietnam War, the labor un most labor unions, party traditional party organizations. And he doesn't run in primaries. Almost all of the primary filing deadlines have passed. At the Democratic convention, Humphrey had a majority of the delegates, and, but there were these anti-Vietnam War protesters who, um, as many people know, uh, were violently suppressed by the Chicago police. Uh, and that tied very much into this debate about the process because, uh, you know, Mayor Daley of Chicago was not only the host of the convention, but a major supporter of President Johnson and eventually of Hubert Humphrey and, and the most powerful local party leader in the country. Uh, he was not just the mayor of Chicago, but he was the chairman of the Cook County Democratic Party and the leading figure in the Democratic Party in the whole state of Illinois. 
and really uh, the most, as I say, the most prominent local figure in the Democratic Party uh, nationwide. So there were big protests at the convention, very, very messy on live television. And to, to reunify the party, hopefully, um, Humphrey agreed to establish a commission that after the election would try to reform the process and make it more open and participatory. And we don't know, had he won the election, we don't know how seriously those efforts would have been undertaken and have followed through. But of course, he did lose to Nixon. But the, the mandate to uh, reform the process um, was taken up. Um, the famous commission of, of created by the, the Democratic Party was called the McGovern-Fraser Commission. Uh, Senator George McGovern and Congressman Donald Fraser uh, co-chaired, and they wanted a process that was more open and participatory that would be more legitimate. They did not require states to have primaries, but they said uh, state parties. But they said there had to be an p- open participatory process. So you, you, you just mentioned that they you know, wanted to make the process more participatory. I, I mean, do, do we have any idea uh, you know, to, to what extent, like how, how genuine that was? I mean, was this just a, a thing where, OK, we'll do this thing to make people feel like they have a say, but the party's still going to call the shots behind the scenes? You know, the party is a they and not an it. It's controlled of many different people with many different perspectives and many different agendas. And that's always been true. Uh, so I don't think you can answer that question as a simple yes or no. Right. And I, and I think who knows, again, as I say, had Humphrey been elected, those changes might have been more limited uh, because the Democratic, the, the national committee um, is, uh, you know, informally subordinated to the president. So they might have made more modest changes. But I think some people thought that the old process was not really so sustainable, um, given what had happened. And I think uh, Fraser and McGovern uh, were sincere. There's every reason to believe that they were sincere reformers and some other people were. It didn't mean that they anticipated the direction that these changes would take or or the results that they would uh, generate. I don't, I think they, for example, didn't necessarily expect there would be so many more primaries. I think they maybe thought there would be more caucuses. I mean, the caucus is an old system, but the kind of Iowa style caucus today where many, many people show up who are not really active, except, you know, when, when they get attracted to a candidate, eight legislatures created primaries. And one thing that's important to say is We've been talking about the Democratic Party. They have, they're the ones that had the messy convention in 68. But the states created primaries for both parties. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask, what, what was the process to bring the Republican Party on board with this plan? The Republican Party uh, was, there wasn't like a, you know, a negotiation or a formal agreement at the national level between the parties. But the same trends the decline in favorite sons. One thing I should say is, you know, this pre-68 decline should be mentioned. Um, so, you know, by 1960, there were some cases when people, governors wanted to be favorite sons and the Kennedy campaign told them, look, we're going to go in, you know, there's television now, people know who the real candidates are, we're going to go into your state and we could campaign against you, so why don't you chair our campaign rather than, you know, maybe losing your own state. So the favorite son tradition was already in decline the process, and that was true in both parties. As I say, Barry Goldwater had run in primaries in 64. 
But what happened is, as I said, many states in 1972 and uh, more in 1976 created primaries, and that just carried both parties along. And it had important implications for the Republicans as well. Today, it seems like we, I think the the primary process in the the media is is often framed as you know voters are picking the candidate that will become the party's nominee for president or or that that state's nominee but i think that the the role that the delegates play is, is often um under underplayed in, in in how primaries are are covered and and talked about and thought about broadly in the public um can can you just explain what role delegates play today and, and and how that relates to the votes that that people cast in in primaries well it hasn't been a substantial role for uh many cycles historically delegates were chosen they might have not been pledged to a candidate they might have been pledged to a favorite son they might have been chosen as uncommitted delegates in effect free agents to go to conventions and of course also candidates might have dropped might drop out at a certain stage maybe before the convention maybe on the third ballot or something and then so the delegates would act have an active part in the process they would actually be making real decisions often they would move in blocks they were led by you know leading of party officials from their states but the delegates um would be making real decisions as i said uh, in the old days it was not uncommon for a convention to open when there was considerable suspense as to what the outcome would be, who would, who would be nominated. That has not been true for a long time. From a legal standpoint, the delegates are still important, just like the uh, electors in the Electoral College are still important. But one candidate has clinched the nomination before the convention opened in both parties in, 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 for, in recent cycles. They haven't done much. Uh, except ratify decision of the voters in the primaries and the caucuses. That's what they're sent there to do. They're obscure people who don't have a lot of legitimacy to do much else. You can imagine circumstances where that doesn't happen. I mean, if something happens, if a candidate has health issues or major scandal, there was discussion at the Cleveland convention in 2016 with the Republican convention of unbinding the delegates as a way of uh, blocking Trump. Uh, but they were afraid they they were afraid to do that. So the so the the delegates uh, on paper play a very important role, like the electoral college does. In practice, they haven't been you know played a meaningful role as individuals for some time. There's always a scenario where where that could change, uh, but that we could talk about that. But that that you know hasn't been the case for many years. Yeah, no, no, totally. And these organizations are also often very slow to change, as, as many large large organizations are and, and things like that. In 2016, we had Donald Trump, of course, get the uh, Republican nomination, a candidate that the party actively opposed for, for much, of, much of his campaign. And now we're seeing in the 2020 race on the Democratic side, you know, Bernie Sanders uh, has, has kind of gone up and down in the polls. We, we are recording this before the, the first primaries happen. But, um, you know, you could also argue he's not really in line with He's he's not not a Democrat by by affiliation and in the Senate, he's, you know, much to the left of where a lot of the the mainstream parties are. So, I mean, has the has the pendulum swung 
too far in in the other direction maybe or or you know what do you make of the fact that we have these candidates that are kind of outside of of party norms now getting getting nominated so that's a really good question um my co-authors and i several years ago published a book uh, called the party decides uh presidential nominations before and after reform and what we said then was that despite the opening of the process in the early 70s after a couple of messy nominations in which candidates were chosen who would not have probably come out of an old-fashioned convention george mcgovern himself in 1972 was sort of the Bernie. He was more. He, he didn't claim to be an independent, but he was sort of the Bernie Sanders of his day, very much on the left, a divisive figure within the party. Uh, and then Jimmy Carter, who started out in 1976 as a as a really as an unknown, and who exploited the openness of the new process, realizing that if you did really well in an early state, Iowa, uh, in, in his case, you could gain a lot of media coverage. Uh, that that was not the old the way it used to work. You know, as I said, in the old days, people entered primaries very selectively. Strong candidates didn't need to run in primaries. This idea was that you would lose, you, you usually just had something to lose if you lost in the primary and only if you really needed to prove something would you get in. So Carter and McGovern were seen as poor choices. Um, McGovern lost 49 states. Carter did win, but very narrowly, and he couldn't having won the nomination without much support from traditional democratic elites. He didn't govern very effectively working with them. So in their early 80s, people said maybe this new open process isn't so great. And some changes were made, but basically it wasn't rolled back. And nonetheless, both parties tended to nominate candidates who reflected all the uh, interests within the party, who had experience, who were broadly acceptable to party elites, who were well-known. This was true in both parties, people who could have been nominated in the 19th century in terms of the style of a person, you know, not, not an outsider, not a bomb thrower. Um, and that's the way it looked in the 80s, in the 90s, in the aughts, in the early aughts. Since then, I think we've seen a destabilization of the process. They're slightly different. Trump and Sanders have some things in common as outsiders. They're slightly different in that Trump, of course, has been a celebrity for over 30 years. Sanders, in, in some ways, uh, Sanders' rise is more impressive in that he was an obscure figure at the beginning. He'd been in Congress for many years, but he was really an obscure figure as late as early 2015. And had Elizabeth Warren run that year, he probably would have had to defer to her. Uh, but he became well-known. And what, what's happened is, I think, because uh, to a large extent, because of the Internet and social media, cable news, other changes in, in media, obscure candidates can become well-known more easily than in the past and can raise significant funds from small donors much more easily than in the past. And so this open process that party elites had seemingly been able to steer somewhat effectively in the 80s and the 90s and the early aughts uh, has become messier. Some of the recent nominees have still been of the sort that they you know, had support from traditional party elites. Hillary Clinton, of course, the most prominent example. I'd also say Mitt Romney in 2012. Yeah. But, you know, we wrote the book uh, based on data from 1980 to 2004. Uh, and I think there's an important change since then. 2004, when John Kerry was nominated as the last year, 
where there really was no social media. There wasn't, YouTube didn't even exist. Um, so it was a different landscape and it is a much more wide open process now. And I think that it's definitely, I would say parties have an important role in democracy. Uh, and there's a school of thought that democracy is really people having a choice between candidates uh, and those candidates should be screened by political parties and should represent them. And that, um, you know, the current ethos in American politics, though, is very populist, very skeptical of elites. Uh, any, any, any idea that people are, you know, that they're, that, that somebody is making a decision for them is uh, hotly contested. There is, there is a, a movement to have more open primaries in that, you know, people from either party can vote in whichever primary that they, they want, as opposed to a, a closed primary system where only, you know, Democrats can only vote in the, in the, the Democratic Party. The, and, the, you know, people in that movement argue that, you know, the country is leaning more and more independent, especially among younger people. There are fewer and fewer people that are choosing to affiliate with one party or the other. So, you know, what, what do you make of that, that open, the open primary movement? It seems like that would give the parties even less control than, than what they already have now. Um, you know, where do you, where do you see that going? I think, you know, close primaries only exist in a minority of states. Uh, only about half the country has party registration, which again is unusually is controlled by the state governments. We don't actually have a formal party membership in the United States. It's very unusual compared to other countries. Uh, if you live in a state without party registration, like you say Illinois, you just are a Democrat or Republican because you think you are, you know, and you know you can go vote in that party's primary uh, on, on that day and. Uh, you know, that you can be deciding which primary to go in when you, you know, walking to the polls. I, some people have criticized uh, closed primaries because they think it contributes to polarization. Uh, that's a different, that's kind of a different debate that, you know, uh, extremists are more likely to be active in the process and so on. I, I think there's not a lot of evidence that closed versus open primaries makes an enormous difference. It is the case that sort of outsider candidates, if we look at exit polls, do better with self-identified independents who are participating in a party primary than the so-called establishment candidates do. But even in states that have close primaries, there are people who will tell pollsters, they think of, yes, I'm a registered Republican, but I really think of myself as an independent. So party identification is a really subjective psychological phenomenon uh, and not, you know, it's not the same party identification as scholars think is very important and maybe more important than the formal registration. Uh, on the thing about more and more independence and young people, there's a really clear life cycle effect. Uh, people develop party identification over time. So 30 years ago and 40 years ago in polls, young people were also more independent. And those people today are no longer young if they're still around uh, and they are stronger partisans. And it's a pretty strong view among uh, political scientists that independence is greatly overstated, that most people who say they're independent, if you probe a little bit, uh, and you say, do you lean towards one party? They'll say, well, I guess I'm more closer to the Democrats or the Republicans. And then if you look at their voting behavior and you look at their political attitudes, they're not that different from the open partisans. So there's very few actual swing voters 
people who have no, who are indifferent to the two parties and uh, people don't, American political culture, as I say, is very populist, very anti-elite and people don't like parties as organizations. They don't understand them and they don't appreciate them. But that's different from saying that they really don't have leanings towards one party or the other. The large majority of voters do. And so, and and if we look at states that have open primaries, uh, which which are not uncommon, they still have political parties. There still is polarization in their state legislatures. So I I don't think it's, it's something that definitely annoyed the Bernie Sanders supporters in 2016 in some states. Uh, and probably hurt him a little bit, but uh, I don't think it's a huge factor, uh, and I think it's probably not going to change too much in the short term. Well, David, this has been very helpful as we we get ready for another season of of primaries here. It's it's really helpful to understand how we got here and uh, where things might go moving forward. So, thank you for joining us today on Democracy Works. It was good to be with you. All right. Well, so um, David Carroll is a, clearly an authority on this, and, and I learned a lot from that interview. That was really interesting. One thing that I thought— I learned a lot whenever I hear David yeah, Carroll Yeah, right, speak. right, right. Very impressive. One thing, Michael, that I thought was, was particularly interesting that I hadn't thought of before is just how much this primary process is driven by changes in technology. And he goes back to saying how Gene McCarthy in 68— understood the power of television and so he went directly to the people through this new medium new effectively new medium and and uh based his campaign on that it was new and it was very effective and then so then the party had to respond to that and now you have this much more dramatic change associated with the internet right and so um with you you saw the beginnings of this the very beginnings of this yeah. with howard dean in what, uh, 2004, yeah. And, um, and so, so um, again, it's a way of circumventing the party, right? Right, there's this, yes, there's this real tension where parties want to maintain control over who's running under their mm-hmm. labels. And it's becoming increasingly difficult because of technology, uh, I think because of the expectations of people, uh, because of changes in fundraising, fundraising right. as well. Right, yeah. because I, I mean, mean, the parties can't. The parties used to be able, through the major bundlers, mm-hmm. to basically cut off flows right. of money to certain candidates, and and so the money race used to be, you know, a much bigger part of it. But now, especially on the Democratic side, but Donald Trump, too, uh, is able to raise uh, enormous amounts of money through small contributors, mm-hmm. taking mm-hmm. advantage of the internet, taking advantage of Act Blue mm-hmm. on the Democratic side, for example, just uh, taking advantage of Citizens United, which means they can just find right. find whoever they want. Yeah, I mean, I think this actually was really critical in the Republican primaries, and that you know when you think about how did Donald how did Donald Trump emerge from that field, especially given the Republican Party elite's discomfort. Mm-hmm. With him, a lot of it had to do with the fact that there were so many candidates right. in the race for so long, and right. and part of how they could do that is, for example, Ted Cruz was relying on you know a couple of major mm-hmm. uh, contributors to his campaign that just sort of kept him in there, and right. you're all they're all able to kind of find their own person to to support the campaign. So the thing that I find particularly interesting about this is that by Diminishing the power of the parties to select the candidates and by making it more democratic, more popular, 
you are increasing the very concerns, making more likely the very concerns that the founders were concerned about with the democracy in the first place, right? Because you're, you're more likely to have people who don't know as much about the issues, don't know as much about the national climate for election. They're looking about their own issues. They're more susceptible to, to some issue that's going on right at the moment. They're more susceptible to demagogic appeals. And um, what you end up with, um, you know, the argument could be made that in, in terms of, you know, the fact that Trump was able to end run this bespeaks the need for gatekeepers, right? For yeah. the very reasons that the founders identified. Yeah, it is. Sometimes democracy requires non-democracy. Less democracy, yeah, right, less right, democracy. right. Yeah, and, and um, you know, I, I think that is always a, uh, a kind of a slippery slope, right? You know, but... But to say that the, I think it's Dewey who said the solution to the problems of democracy is more democracy. That's just too easy, and and sometimes it's wrong, right? <laughs> or you know, I, I'm getting yeah. I, or or picking candidates that are going to be able to work with the party and actually get things done. The party cares about the party too, right? The, the party, party cares, cares about winning elections, right? Exactly, and so you know, and it's and, also and delivering policy, of course. Yeah. But it's but it's also like not just this election. They're thinking. Who should we be thinking about four years from now, eight years from now? Who should be thinking about in this district after this person re- finally retires in, in five years, right? So the party is thinking about this long term. It's thinking about it in terms of demographics. It's thinking about it in terms of balancing these constituencies. And, um, you know, most people don't think that way. And, and so you end up with candidates that are... Um, not necessarily in the best interest of the of the party and of the country. Now, I mean, this makes us sound like we're uh, being, you know, we're being very anti-democratic. But the point is, you know, and and it's it's also not true that the the smoke-filled rooms were always were batting a thousand, right? Yeah. Anyway, well, so it is this interesting back and forth between the push and pull of pro-democracy, pro-party. Um, dimensions within this whole process. It's messy. It's, you know, unusual. Um, It's distinctively American. But it's really important (laughs) to talk about because a part of it that's not distinctly American is that democracy sometimes requires a reduction in democracy because it does require gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. And so that may not be the most democratic process. I mean, there are other instances we've talked about in terms of expertise and things like that when you don't necessarily, you know, more democracy is not necessarily the best thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, so it's, yeah, it is interesting how many of these little things like the Iowa caucus reflect some really big questions about how do you make a democracy go? All right, so... Because uh, democracy is more than just what the majority says. Yeah, that's right. That's probably as good a way to frame it as any. I mean, can't run a democracy without rights and without um, processes that are fair. Yeah. Anyway, for, uh, from the Courtney Institute for Democracy, uh, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. Thank you for listening. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Andy Grant is our engineer, and our editors are Mark Stitzer and Chris Kugler. Additional support comes from Ann Danahay, Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. 
For more information on this episode and detailed show notes, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. And if you like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thank you.